Intersection is brought to you by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Learn more at touchpoint.health. And can you say that the lenses that you test are in many places in the universe? Well, as a solar system, I've tested lenses that are not on Earth anymore and are functioning fine. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. What is your greatest passion? Learning. Absolutely learning. Expand that for me. Well, I can go back to uh, medical school, which was, I thought, the high point of my life. I've never learned at such a rapid rate and learned so much. And ever since then, it's been, you know, what can I learn? Um, if you if you look on my Kindle, you'll find a history book, uh, an astrophysics book, and some trash fiction. You know, that's that's what I'm reading currently. It's always of the ones that I'm looking at, the the astrophysics is the most interesting right now. Although the history is pretty close. My name is Roger Sakala. I'm a fairly old man now. Um, Having hit 60, it's, it's on my mind. Used to be a physician in two different specialties. Used to teach college. Used to work for the DEA. And uh, got into photography and started lens rentals. Roger Sakala likes gadgets, but most of all, he loves photography. This former physician fell in love with photography and built a nationwide photography rental business because of one of the lenses he purchased. Yes, it was a Canon lens, one of those beautiful white prime lenses. After purchasing this $5,000 lens for a picture he wanted to capture, he found himself with an asset he only used a few times a year. So he decided to rent it, and from the living room of his house, he grew a multi-million dollar business that not only rents photography equipment, but ventures into other arenas, including testing lenses for NASA, testing lenses and cameras for accuracy, and giving back to his medical roots. But what is so fascinating about Roger as an entrepreneur He is a venture he wants to dust off and find a group willing to partner. He has a way to photograph injuries of domestic violence victims using a special technology that could help law enforcement build a case against their abusers. Roger and I have many intersections, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, hold up. So you're used to be a physician, and now you have a company that rents camera gear. Correct. Wow. I mean, I. that's kind of, wow. How do I fathom that? Well, first of all, uh, on the physician side, realize that ex-physicians are becoming pretty common. I probably was ahead of the curve. But a lot of people are leaving medicine. So uh, that's, that's not totally unusual. Uh, my plan wasn't really to leave medicine. My plan was to expand my hobby, which was photography. And maybe have a little side business, you know, um, something I do in, in my old age after work. Um, and that's not how it turned out, but that's the story of my life, really. Nothing's, you know, nothing turned out how I planned. So talk about uh, your practice. So what type of physician were you? Where'd you go to med school? Give us a little medical background on you. Well, I was the, uh, the first college graduate in my family, so I didn't have anybody to really guide me. Uh, I went to medical school at the University of Tennessee because it was in Memphis, where I lived, and the tuition was the cheapest, and I didn't realize that you know I could go other places, really. Um, 
went into surgery as an intern, I realized suddenly that I'd committed to six years of residency and I didn't like to operate and that didn't seem like a really good idea. So I changed over to anesthesiology, which is where I practiced and ended up doing uh, trauma critical care for a while, which was really cool when you're in your mid twenties, it was 24 hour shifts. And I thought that was great. And then one day I kind of looked around and went, nobody still works here that was here when I came. And there was a reason for that. And I was pretty burned out. Um, Went and did regular anesthesiology, uh, took a little time and taught college for a year and kind of got my stuff together and went and retrained in a field of pain management, which was uh, really kind of fun because at the time it was just uh, early x-ray guided procedures and I really enjoyed that. And uh, I did that for a long time, um, had some side jobs. I, I wrote a lot. I wrote academically. Uh, I was in academic medicine for a while. And then uh, ended up kind of in a really nice position where I was working uh, in a big neurosurgical practice weekdays, which for a doc is, is kind of nirvana, uh, very limited call. And, and it was a good job. And I got into photography and uh, had time to do that. And, and literally one day, booked a cruise to go to Alaska and I was going to do wildlife photography and I wanted a really good telephoto lens and I thought, well, I'll never use it again, so let me rent one. And I found out I couldn't really do that. So I bought it and then came home and had buyer's remorse and thought, I'll try to rent this. And I bet some other people would be like me and want to rent it. And um, that just went crazy. It went absolutely nuts. So in the world of medicine, uh, you know, there's a big discussion nationally about physician burnout, and it sounds like you kind of jumped from a different parts of medicine. You start off in surgery, you went to anesthesiology from a surgical, uh, you know, trauma area to a different area. Um, what did you learn along the way about medicine that made you love it so much that kind of kept you in it for so many years? Well, I think it, part of it is is that that passion, the learning part. Um, I loved medical school, and I loved learning in residency. And then I found in practice, I wasn't learning as much. That's why I went back into academics. And then I changed fields, and I got bored. And, and the, the running joke with me is I have a five-year attention span, and that's pretty accurate. Um, but the practice of medicine is not the exciting, for me at least, learn new things every day. It was do the same thing every day. So that was a lot of it for me. Um, and I think there's a culture shock. I, you know, there was, there's a study from years ago, I don't know if it's still accurate, but physicians have a moderately high suicide rate. But the weird thing about it is, is it tends to be in their 30s, which is not when other people consider suicide. I really understand that because I think one day you wake up, you're 32, you've spent 12 years getting to this place, and here you are. And that place may not be what you thought it was going to be. And now you've got so much invested in it, you know, from a resource standpoint, a time standpoint, a financial standpoint, a family. I mean, there's this expectation. It's, I would imagine it's hard to deny all this training and resource and just like, oh, I, I'm going to try something else. Exactly. And, and financially, it's impossible. You're in debt up to your eyeballs. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, I'm not really sure I'm crazy about medicine, but I can't go wait tables. Yeah. 
Uh, and I was never bitter about medicine. I didn't dislike it. I mean, it, it got to be a pain in the rear with insurance companies and stuff. I enjoyed it, and I really liked the people I worked with, but it wasn't the excitement of internship and residency anymore. And it, and there was an overwhelming, here's the rest of my life. How did you get into academics? Um, obviously, you had a passion for learning, but there's a difference between passion for learning and a passion for teaching, wouldn't you say? I think there is, and I, I always, uh, I, I guess part of that fun of learning to me is to be able to then teach it to someone else. But a lot of it with academics was was uh, that same kind of, huh? Nobody seems to know about this. We should look into that. Most people won't really understand this, but back in the day when I was trained, when was that? I was taught you could. That was in the eighties. So I was taught you could put a needle anywhere by feel. So we did epidurals and spinal blocks and other blocks by feel. And that was how we were taught. And it was just a fact. And then, you know, I started thinking, do we really know? So I started putting a little x-ray dye in my blocks and taking pictures and found out, oh, they, they weren't where I thought it was. There were several other people doing it. It wasn't all me, but we were writing this stuff up and people would, I'd go like, you know, we're missing 10% of our epidurals. And the response would be, you just don't know how to do them. Uh, but then other people found the same thing. And now you wouldn't dream of doing these procedures without x-ray guidance. So that was, that was the kind of stuff that I was getting into and it was fun. And for people that don't understand it, x-rays are photography. It is photography. It is taking a picture <laughs> using some <laughs> sort of apparatus to gain an image Correct. Was that the kind of the beginning stages of maybe that learning and exploration? Like, here's this tool that will help me do something better by taking a picture. Well, actually, the, the, the really learning part for me was, and this is really dating myself, an Apple Quick Take 100 camera, which was the size of a brick and took a 640 by 280 pixel image. But it it was right on my computer, and I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So I got into photography not so much from anything but that. I could make these little thumbnail pictures, and then those got a little better. And I got into Photoshop and actually taught Photoshop for a while, uh, a few years later in college. So I was, I was using photography equipment to get stuff to teach Photoshop with. Then we were using Photoshop. This is back in Photoshop 1. <laughs> and we used NIH Image, which was a, a government program that only did black and white at the time. Um, but that's where I really got into it. That was cutting edge. And how are you using this imagery and this technology in your medical world, you know, beyond just the epidurals and the – and uh, where were you evolving to that helped you – perform a physician as a physician on a daily basis? Well, the biggest thing in those days, I was giving a lot of lectures, so you'd have to have slides. And the way you made a slide of an x-ray was you basically put it on the wall and took a picture of it, you know, on the light box, and then took the film down and had it developed. And so this was a way I could kind of get a slide quickly, no film. So I could do my little procedures and take some x-rays and get a decent sort of projectable slide image for my PowerPoint presentation. So talk about the emergence of photography as a hobby. What were some of the early things that, was it just to kind of get out in the, in the wilderness? Was it just to take pictures on trips? How did that emerge and what were some of the first cameras that you bought? Well, to be honest, it emerged with the Canon Digital Rebel. If you, uh, 
go back in the day, which was actually a, a decent digital camera that was affordable. And I, I you know, other than that, I've never really gotten into film photography at all. But this, this was a, okay. Look at this. I can take my vacation pictures and get them right away. So my very first thing was a Canon digital rebel and two Quantaray zoom lenses, which were horrid. But <laughs> you know, I was the typical camera and two lens set. Yep. Guy. And of course, you know, quickly realized the lenses were limiting me. So I got better lenses, better lenses, became a gearhead within probably six months. What, what became your favorite lens in that early stage of your hobby? Oh, no question. Um, well, there were, there were two actually. I, I bought my first L lens, which was a 70 to 200 F4L. Oh, great lens. And went, yeah. And just went like, Oh wow, this camera's way better than I thought. <laughs> uh, and then the next big moment for me was uh, a Canon 135 f2. Wow, which is still a, still a great lens. I have that lens and I love it. Well, and that 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 literally, I was like, oh look, I can do this, and that's when I started to try to learn photography. Uh, because that lens gave me a tool that I could do all kinds of things with. And then I found out that, oh, primes were better than zooms. And, you, you know, I was off to the races. So by the time we got to that point where I needed the 500 millimeter F4, I probably had 30 lenses, uh, not expensive ones, but things like, you know, 514s and 8518s. And, you know, I was, I was willing to starting to learn the craft. Yeah. And, um, that, that's how it, that's how it hooked me. Um, so even at, at first, I was more about the lenses than the cameras, I think. So one of the lenses that is one of my favorites is the 50 F1.4. I love that lens. I've never been in a place to cost justify getting the 1.2 because if you're going to go to 1.2, daggummit, you better focus good or you're going to be in big trouble. Um, if, you really have to need it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's, that's, a, that's a specialty tool. Yeah. And I've never really understood why people just go automatically buy it. It's just because it's maybe the big thing that looks cool. But that F1.4 is a powerful lens, and it is still my favorite. Well, I, I'm hooked on the Sigma 50 F1.4 now. Really? Which is a, a big lens, <laughs> but worth it. Sometimes they're just worth it. Let me ask. I'm like you. I never really got into the 1.2. It was kind of cool to play with, but as far as actually producing things with it, I, I don't focus that well. Um, the 85 1.2, I, I, I've used quite a bit and liked. Yeah. Now, though, I agree with that. That 85 1.2 is phenomenal. But what was it like when you bought that big lens? Because you have to buy a big lens for very precise things. And then realizing that other people want this and moving from just owning to renting, that's a, that's a big business model shift, wouldn't you say? It is, and it was desperation and guilt. Um, <laughs> I just paid, in those days, a 500 F4 was about five grand, which was probably as much as I'd invested in all my other lenses, you know. And I came home and realized, I'm never going to use this again. I'm not a wildlife guy, per se. I guess I could sell it, but I bet there's somebody else like me that would like to rent one because he just needs it for a week or two. 
and and literally just I, I bought a fifty dollar you know pre made web page and put it up and then thought well it's going to look lonely so I put all my gear on it and made it go live and literally like ten days later I called a friend and said I need to borrow a camera and a lens I, I've got to shoot I promised to do this weekend and he goes where's your stuff and I went well it all it all rented. So literally in 10 days, all of my gear was gone. People had rented it. <laughs> so let me, did you insure it or did you just send it out and like, you know, get money and hope it comes back type of thing? Oh, get money, hope it comes back kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> because think about it, go to an insurance company and go, I've got this gear. I'm going to send it to people I don't know and I'd like you to insure it for theft. It ain't happening. No. Um, and even when we got bigger, it wasn't happening. Um, they would just be going like, yeah, we'll insure it for, you know, like a third of its value per year, which was far more than, you know, the possible profits I could make. So no, it didn't happen. The same thing with, with shipping insurance. It's just, it's not affordable. We were self-insured from day one. Now a quick break to ask for your help. If you like Intersection, we would really appreciate you take a moment, whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. This is important because it helps others find our show. Thanks so much for your help. Now, let's return to the show. There's a big difference from just renting out your own gear to growing it into what Lens Rentals is today. Talk about the first year of just doing that. Well, the biggest thing that happened, there were two things. One was me going, you know, this might actually work, and hmm, I could buy more gear, which that didn't take much encouragement. I thought that was just perfectly fine. And then literally about a month, six weeks into it, I got an email from a stranger who said, you've got a great idea and the worst website I've ever seen. <laughs> and I said, well, um, yeah, but I'm not going to put any money into this. I don't think it's going to work. And he goes, yeah, it'll work. And I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm a programmer. I'll write your website. I'll do you some back-end inventory control stuff. And I said, I'm not, I'm not spending any money. And he goes, how about this? I'll, I'll do it for 2% of the gross a month. Well, I looked down and that was going to be like 30 bucks. <laughs> so I was sure. And this guy uh, named Will made a good website, made inventory control, uh, was there all the time. And he was a well, uh, I mean, he was, he was a good programmer. And a couple of years later, that 2% was this huge amount of money. <laughs> I had to go like, how about I give you a percent of the business? So that was, that was a critical thing. And the, the funny thing is, here's this person I've never met except by email. I met him four years later. It was the first time we actually eyeballed each other. Wow. Now we emailed and texted every day, all day. But for four years, and, and at that point, now it's a fairly good-sized company with office space and 18, 20 employees, and I've never met my programmer. Wow. How long were you in your house? You talked about you were in your house for a long time, and then it's all all of a sudden it's like, okay, we got to go bigger than this. About eighteen months, um, and remember, during the eighteen months, we were growing a hundred percent every two to three months. 
it went from a walk-in closet to a full bedroom to everywhere. And then the, the protocol got to be that I went to work and about two in the afternoon, several people came to my house to fulfill orders and pack and receive orders and clean. And I got home and helped. And then about seven o'clock, uh, my significant other had dinner for everybody. <laughs> and they all went home. <laughs> Now, I, I thought this was a great arrangement, but much to my surprise, one day I came home and everybody left and she looked at me and she said, you're going to get these damn people out of my damn house right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I started looking for office space. <laughs> so, this is so awesome. It's pretty hysterical. I can remember with pride when I needed to buy a two-wheeler because the UPS truck, we were using UPS at the time, wouldn't pull into my driveway. So it was like, oh, we can't just keep carrying these boxes out. I got a big two-wheeler. I thought, that I got it going on. And, and now FedEx pulls up an 18-wheeler and leaves the trailer every morning and then comes back and takes it away that night. I don't know how much you're willing to share, but how many orders are y'all doing on a daily, monthly basis now? Uh, it depends on the season, but hundreds, um, rarely a thousand a day. Orders, that's not pieces, that's orders. Wow. And how many times does that FedEx truck come? Well, the, the big FedEx truck comes in the morning and we empty it and then it stays there and we fill it up that night and they come back and get it. Wow. And how big is your space now? Uh, well, we're in two large warehouse type buildings. Wow. So, did you imagine this? Oh, hell no. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd do this after work, you know? It's just amazing. So, how did you get from from lens rentals into doing image testing for government agencies? Talk about that. Well, okay, lens rentals gets to be a pretty good size. And, you know, we're doing... Let's, let's say 40, 50 orders a day. And, uh, you know, sometimes a customer will go, you sent me this lens and it was awful. And I'll test it and go, no, it's it's just fine. Maybe you've never shot a super telephoto before or, you know, maybe whatever. But it works really fine. Or, or maybe and in those days, um, there were a lot of autofocus issues where there's camera lens variation. So this lens might focus perfectly fine on my camera, and you put it on yours, and it back focuses a little. There was a microfocus adjustment and stuff. But the bottom line is, I'd go, it's fine, and they'd go, it's not fine. And I'd say, well, here's the test charts, and he'd go, well, here's my pictures, and well, here's your money back. So I got to be where I, I need to be able to definitively say if a lens is good or not, or I'm refunding money all the time. And so we went into Imatest. I'm sure you're familiar with that. It's a computer analysis chart-based kind of thing. And that was good enough for us for a while, but it's very slow. And it's not totally accurate. And then uh, we were we were doing better with some other things. And I'll never forget, but there was a deal with one of the manufacturers in wide-angle lenses back then where we would go, this lens is horrible. And we'd send it in and they'd send it back and go, oh, it's meat spec. And I'd go, what is spec? And they'd go, we can't share that. <laughs> and I'd say, but it's really soft in the right upper corner or the right side, and it's different than the left side. And, it's, and this is what they hated when I'd go, I've got 30 copies, and this is the only one that's, that's this way. 
dead meat spec. So finally, we were, I guess, large enough, and I was vocal enough that uh, the company sent some engineers down here, and I'll never forget one of them who patted me on the head and said, you, you don't have the background to understand testing. And that's all she wrote. <laughs> it wasn't a year later. I had uh, one company designing a machine to my spec, and I had an optical test bench. And I was one of the great things I did was I went to the University of Rochester, which is the best optical um, engineering institute in the country, and found out what summer interns made. And so I hired summer interns for three dollars an hour or more, so they'd come down here and teach me. And uh, within a year, we were doing testing that was probably better than any camera companies. And then we started, uh, you know, these are bright young kids at the top institute in the country. And I'm going, okay, well, what would you like to do? And so they got excited and they started doing all kinds of stuff and writing software. And, you know, we could do this and we could do that. And they had new ideas. And it was to talk about learning at a fast rate and having a blast. And, you know, some of it was simple, like, uh, are you familiar with MTF charts at all? little bit. Okay. Well, the one thing that, that, that it's pretty easy. If you look at the chart, it goes from the center of the lens to the edge of the lens. Right. So that's it. And that's actually what was originally measured. You took a lens, you put, put it at the center, and you measured a few spots to one edge. And you assumed, because on a computer program, the lens is rotationally symmetric, so you assume it's the same everywhere else on the lens. And one of these kids is like, well... You know, I wonder if they're if they're really the same everywhere. So we started doing MTFs in different rotations and found out that no lens was the same in all those quadrants. Huh. And then we started going, well, if, the, if they vary from one side to the other, does it vary from one lens to the other? And we saw that they did a lot. And this was really bad news when when we published it. People went nuts. A lot of people went nuts because if you're a camera manufacturer. That's not anything you want people to know, that our lenses vary. Yep. And the other group that really didn't want anybody to know that was the people who review lenses. Because they review a lens, and they say, this is this 24-millimeter lens, and it's how they are. And I'd go, no, it varies by 20%, copy to copy. And that's why Joe's review is great, and Bill's review is not. Hmm. Well, that did not get well-received by that group either. And literally, for a couple of years, people were just going, you're wrong. You're wrong. And we, we published all this stuff in academic journals, and it was right. And now everybody knows that lenses vary. But at the time, it was not, not a happy time. So we had, had these automation things, and that made MTF testing reasonably rapid because my kids had automated so many of the tasks that it takes to do it. So if you're a manufacturer and you went to one of the standard companies that did MTF testing, they charged about 1000 1500 to test your lens per copy. And we could do it for about 150. <laughs> New business model. Yeah, and it was cool because you know we would like set it all up and then go have coffee and come back and there's the results. And we had computer programs that were presenting the results, and we're testing four quadrant rotations and flatness and field curvature and stuff nobody else was doing. So uh, a couple of the um, aerospace companies. You know, it used to be like if NASA wanted a lens, they went to a company and said, "Make us a lens." $100,000, cool. And now they don't have the budget for that anymore. So they go to companies and go, what lens is off the shelf that fits our requirements? Mm. And guess what they figured out? Oh, if we buy it off the shelf, it varies. <laughs> 
so when they looked into that, my name came up. And so that got to where they would send us, okay, we bought eight of these lenses, test them, find the four best ones. We're going to stress them, put them on the centrifuge and shake them and heat them and send them back and see if they're going to survive launch. And that got to be a thing. Now, let me make it clear. There's absolutely no money in it. <laughs> but I do get to say I'm a rocket scientist now. <laughs> And can you say that the lenses that you test are in many places in the universe? Well, in the solar system. That's very cool. I've tested lenses that are not on Earth anymore and are functioning fine. Wow. And, and you know, the really funny thing when I talk about all that testing stuff, that same company that patted me on the head and said I couldn't understand years ago, I, I test for their R&D department now. Because wow. the R the R and D department said, well, you know, we don't have anybody here who can do this kind of testing. Let's shift gears. With all that knowledge and testing and interest, you started something even totally different that kind of pulls you back in the medical world. What's the this ultraviolet uh, imaging that kind of got going? But you're trying to find a place, but it could be really used for domestic violence victims. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it's it's a project that has never left the drawing board, although uh, a friend of mine, Brian, Brian Caldwell, is a lens designer, and he and I have another little company that designs lenses, um, more, more as a hobby business than anything else. But he designed UV visible IR lenses that pass all frequencies of light, and it's used a lot in forensics. And some years ago, I think it was Fuji actually made a camera for forensic use where the, the camera's... UVIR filter was removed, and then depending on what filter you put on front of the lens, you could photograph in ultraviolet or infrared or visible. Um, that camera is no longer available. It hasn't been for years, so we were looking at modifying cameras to do that same kind of thing and, and probably include like a UV light and make a package for not, not necessarily just forensic work, but for me, the ability in a hospital to take a UV photograph particularly in the emergency department, is huge because a lot of minor injuries or, or deep tissue injuries that are fresh don't show up very well in visible light. But under ultraviolet or sometimes infrared light, there's a dramatic um, ability to see things like subcutaneous bruising or um, grip trauma. And I, I've seen several photographs, and if somebody wants to, they could just Google online and see UV uh, emergency room photographs. But um, particularly in a dark screen person, where you may look and they go, well, you know, my upper arm was grabbed and it really hurts, and you look and it looks normal, but you take a UV photograph and you can see the handprints. Mm. Uh, or fresh bruising or multiple bruises. And, you know, and very often uh, seeing pictures where a child comes in and there's a bruise and you're kind of like, yeah, this is kind of questionable. And you take a UV photograph and you see older bruises in four other places and it's no longer questionable. So it's a tool. It's not a perfect tool, but it's a tool that could be readily available. And, um, you know, I, I would I would like to be able to make that available again. It's not particularly complex to do. And. If every emergency department had one and it was just a thing where you go, you know, let's let's take a UV photograph. Some of them now have UV lights and they will, you know, darken the room and look at the child with a UV light. But that's not evidence. It's not something you can keep. 
um, even though it's, it's, it's a very effective thing to do. So I, I think that would be a useful thing to have. And there's still police departments who would like and don't have um, forensic evidence for everything from you know, stains and semen and blood stains uh, that show up under different lighting conditions much better than they do under visible light. It even breaks through the uh, the racial barrier because no matter the skin tone or skin color, it can still detect this. Is that correct? It does to a large extent, um, and you know that's, that's one thing. If if you have a a Nordic complected person, you know if you look at them hard, you can make a bruise that appears. But a dark skinned individual may get may get hit, and the bruise is not obvious. And the, the the UV and, and infrared lights sometimes will show that in, in that individual where visible light just doesn't. And so basically you've kind of figured out this magic package that you provide it to people and it's you know, with some simple instruction and you're ready to go as opposed to trying to piece it all together and figure out the technology. Yeah, there's no there's no rocket science here. Uh, there's like so there's a company that can remove the UV filter from the camera. There are lenses available to pass the light. There are light sources available that do that. Um, I'm in the photography business, so I know where those things are, and they're easy to obtain. I think if you ask the uh, you know the, the um, manager of the emergency room to get all that stuff, it would be quite a chore. So. Whether it was packaged in a kit, which would probably be the easiest thing to do um, with some simple instructions on how to do it, or, you know, for that matter, here's links. You can buy the camera, have it modified. Here's the lens. I, you know, that, that kind of stuff is, is available. But a, a package would probably cost somewhere around $10,000 to have a really good package. And I think that's the kind of thing that a lot of places could apply for a grant for if they could go, and here it is. Um, but right now it's like we want $10,000 and we're going to buy some stuff and that doesn't work very well. In all your experience of everything that you work on, you know, from photography to the medical world to your just desire to learn, how did this pop up? Uh, it actually popped up because you know it's, it's one of those things where crossing fields uh, is often very fertile. Um, I started working with Brian and, and one of his best designs with this UV IR lens. And he's talking about, well, we designed it for police departments, but now that people don't have film, there's no cameras to use it on anymore. And I was like, wow, that's a great idea. I also have cameras that we stock at lens rentals that we've had modified because some people want to do infrared photography. And I knew that you could also modify them for UV. And then I had a medical background where I can remember looking at stuff with a woods light and uh, and how valuable sometimes looking at things in UV light was and had seen infrared pictures of bruising um, and things like that. So it all kind of clicked. And I was like, well, that'd be a simple package to put together for the emergency room. You know, then actually Brian came back and went, you know, somebody did that once and he Googled it and found some pictures and went, oh, yeah, look at this. This is dramatic. So we all sat down and we figured out how we we're going to do it. And as often happens in my world, um, well, something else came up and something else came up and something else came up, and it's still in that, oh, we could do that one day stage. So as we go back to my first question, what's your passion? And you said learning. Now I get it. You are in constant state of learning, aren't you? Absolutely. That's, that, that's where the fun is. If I go to bed and I haven't learned anything, it's, it's, a, it's a bad day. 
Thank you, Roger. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts, including Datapoint, hosted by Greg Matthews, featuring trending topics as he explores the idea of the quadruple aim, enhancing patient experience, improving population health, improving provider experience, and reducing costs in the system. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.